Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Media. Hello everyone, it's me, James, and I am joining you today for another in a long series of the little recordings where I ask you to give us your money. Uh, once again, I'm asking you to support the mutual aid work being done at the border. Um, I'm recording this in November, and this week we have terrible weather forecasts that will make conditions in Hakumba extremely dangerous for people who are detained out there by the Department of Homeland Security. It will mean that it, it's no exaggeration to say that people's lives will be at risk and that the important mutual aid work that is already being done will only become more important as we get rain, we get snow and we get cold temperatures and people continue to be detained without shelter, food, water or uh, adequate clothing. If you would like to support those efforts, you can find the way to do so at linktree slash border kindness. Uh, there's a dot before the EE, so it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash border kindness. I'll also post a link on my Twitter if you'd like to find it there. Thank you. In the weeks since the end of October, the conflict landscape in Myanmar has significantly changed. The junta and its aligned militias have taken unprecedented losses. And the PDF, as well as several ethnic revolutionary organizations, have swept across the country seizing bases, weapons, tanks, and even towns and cities. As the offensive was ongoing, I spoke to Sayar Montine, a leader in the Mandalay PDF, and Billy Ford of the United States Institute for Peace. What follows is my conversation with Billy and some insights on the situation on the ground with the Madeley PDF. You'll hear more from Sayar Montine in another episode that we're working on, but I wanted you to hear his personal on-the-ground perspective now as well. First, I'll let Nine Nine, the translator from Madeley PDF, introduce our guest. Oh yeah, yes. He is the leader of the commanding and cohesion team, and you can also say that he's the leader of our organization. To start with, I asked Billy to explain for you the developments in the conflict in the last few weeks. I mean, it's really been just the past, what is it, since the 27th, so 13 days, um, 
kind of a level change in the conflict trajectory. Whereas I'd say, I mean, you got coup February 1st, 2021, major military operate resistance operations began September 7th, 2021. And frankly, since then, it's been more or less incremental change. I, you can, I wouldn't characterize it as a stalemate as many have, but there's, um, there's essentially been, you know, small pockets of progress where the resistance is capturing territory, but all almost exclusively rural areas of the country. Um, and then things changed radically on October 27th, when, um, whereas before the 27th, you had a range of, of armed stakeholders involved in the conflict, some under the deposed National Unity Government, um, as well as what's called the K3C, which is four of the biggest ethnic armed organizations. Um, but a lot, a lot of the reason why we hadn't seen the level change in the military balance of power was because of the absence of some of the biggest and most powerful armed organizations that had more or less stayed on the sidelines. I mean, they were arming and training resistance forces that were engaged in active combat, but they hadn't themselves in a meaningful way. But on the 27th, that totally changed. Um, this alliance called the Brotherhood Alliance that involves three of the biggest armed organizations initiated coordinated attacks in northern Shan State on the border with China um, and have since the 27th, uh, we're talking to you on the 10th here of, of November, um, 150 posts have been taken Seven towns are now under full resistance control. Seven others, by my count, are under partial resistance control. Um, and the operation in northern Shan State on the border has effectively spurred resistance um, operations in other parts of the country. Um, and so now you essentially have operations in all corners of the country. Um, I mean, you've seen PDFs taking towns in Sagain along the Indian border. You've seen the KNU taking important um, towns on the logistics corridor on the Thai border. Kareni groups have moved into Mese on the Thai border with Kareni state. The Chin National Front has initiated attacks in Palatwa and southern Chin State near the Bangladesh-India border. Um, yeah, so it's really just um, the trajectory of conflict has gone from an incremental trajectory where it's like this is a slow burn that could last a long time to a we need to start thinking about potentially day after. Um, I mean, nothing is, is a given and the Myanmar military has... Uh, been resilient in the past, but it does feel like this is a historic moment in a lot of ways, and the military is weakened in a way that we've we've really never seen in the history of the country. I asked Montine to explain a little about how he got to a point where his force, who hadn't fought at all in 2021, were able to fight alongside the EROs and deal a serious defeat to the junta. So in 2021 March. Um... Uh, he decided to go for the armed revolutions and then he started reading the books about the military and tactics and then uh, warfare things. And then he said that he is still learning and reading from the books about the uh, military tactics till now. And one more thing is uh, we are having some problems about the other people's defense force PDF that they don't have the well forming, and then they they, they don't uh, follow the code of conduct or something like that. So we organize well that uh, we won't become a bloodthirsty organization, but just to fight for the uh, military coup. And uh, one more thing is uh, we are following the two COC, which is a code of conduct and then chain of commands uh, before we uh, form, uh, form up as the this uh, military organizations. A number of the EROs are acronyms you won't have heard before, and that's because they haven't been part of the conflict before. So I asked Billy to explain who the EROs in the North were and how and why they had entered the fight now. Sure. So the Arakan Army is a Rakhine ethnic based um, armed organization. 
They're based on the China border, but for those who know Myanmar geography, Rakhine State is actually on the complete other side of the country. But this, like many or, like many newer armed organizations, they were essentially incubated by uh, some of the longer term armed organizations. In this case, the Kachin Independence Army um, helped for the emergence of the Arakan Army, which has um, really grown in the past 10 years into one of the strongest armed stakeholders in the country. Before the coup um, under the Aung San Suu Kyi led National League for Democracy government, um, they were in uh, intense fighting with the Myanmar military. Um, and Aung San Suu Kyi strongly supported the Myanmar military's operations against the AA. And that kind of built some bad blood, as you might be able, might imagine, between the AA and the National League for Democracy. And, and that bad blood has made it difficult to build alliance across ethnic lines and with those um, resistance organizations that involve NLD folks. But the key point here is that the AA is operating in two places, Rakhine State and in Northern Shan State on the and, and Kachin State, um, also actually in Sagai now. Um, but And they're an extremely powerful armed organization, highly disciplined, highly effective, well-armed. Um, the, the, the second group is the Ta'ang National Liberation Army. This is a um, an ethnic-based army in Northern Shan State that um, also is a, a relatively a newer armed organization. Um, they, uh, they, they it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complex uh, military environment in Northern Shan State because the, the TNLA are often in tension with other Shan uh, ethnic groups that are in Shan State, including the RCSS or the Shan State Army South which is com competing for control in other parts of Shan State. Um, we've also seen some tension between the TNLA and the SSPP, which is another Northern Shan army um, that's closely aligned with the Wa and Chinese. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty complex array of, of relationships there. But the TNLA is also an increasingly powerful armed organization, one that administer administers territory, um, and has also been locked in conflict with the Myanmar military for some time. The last group um, is the MNDAA, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army. Uh, this is a, a Kokong ethnic-based armed organization that for a long time controlled um, a territory along the uh, China border in 2009, Min Online, who is now the commander-in-chief and the head of um, the uh, SAC. Um, he essentially was leading commands in north in the northeast and led operations to push the MNDAA out of that territory and replace it with a border guard force of another ethnic a Kokong ethnic um, army. And um, we can get back to that, but that ethnic army became um, or is a criminal enterprise that's now operating massive scam and human trafficking operations with the support of the Myanmar military. They're commissioned under the Myanmar military. Um, but I think a key point here is that there's it's very personal with the MNDAA and this border guard force and um, and men online. And so this is really the MNDAA is an organization that has been pushing for a very long time to retake this territory um, and particularly this city of Laokai. Um, and so that 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 three constitutes uh, the Brotherhood Alliance. Um, there's other stakeholders in this region, including the United Wa State Army, which is the, the largest armed organization um, it, um, in Myanmar um, or non-state armed organization. Um, as well, which is very closely tied with the Chinese. Um, I mean, they use Chinese currency. They speak Chinese. Um, they fully administer their ter territory autonomously. Um, and then the other organizations that are relevant here is the National Democratic Alliance Army, NDAA, which is essentially, you can think of it as a closely tied with the WA um, and the Chinese. And then the Kachin Independence Army, which is a Kachin ethnic-based um, armed organization, um, very much founded as a social services. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of got a different identity from some of these other groups. It's very much like a revolutionary organization with political intentions. Um, uh, there's kind of Christian beliefs that are embedded within the, the organization. 
Um, so yeah, all to say it's a highly complex array of actors with different intentions and motivations. But in this particular case, they came together to, um, or at least the Brotherhood Alliance came together to launch this, this coordinated attack. The Ta'ang National Liberation Army are the group who received many of the young people of Mandalay, who went on to form the Mandalay PDF. Those young people started out as a strike force within Mandalay, but their only weapons were Molotov cocktails, and every action they took was a risk to their whole families if they were caught. By March, a few weeks into the revolution, Montinet and others took to the mountains with the Ta'ang National Liberation Army to learn to fight. Before the revolution, he said, he had no experience and he didn't even play fighting video games. I asked him how it felt to be joining a group he'd been raised to hate and how he got there. Before we formed uh, Mandalay PDF, we started as a MSTF, which is a Mandalay Special Task Force. It was the first training for our organizations. Um, and uh, at the time, we only have uh, some uh, handmade weapons like Molotov, but uh, we really don't use uh, like ha- handmade guns. But the, after the support of uh, TNLE, we, we got the automatic rifles with the help of our lines. And uh, at first, uh, when we act as a MSTF, a Manly Special Task Force, we uh, restrict the rules for not attacking to the schools or hospitals or the civilians. And then after that, we start using the handmade uh, weapons like uh, just like uh, Molotov. We didn't use any handguns at the time, but after that, we try uh, and uh, we contact with the TNLA. We have uh, we now have the automatic rifles and then others uh, uh, missiles or something like that now. So when he decided to contact with the uh, TNLA, the N nationals, what he expected were nothing else but some few problems that about the uh, races because of most of the ethnic groups, uh, they most of them, they hate uh, uh, Burmese people and they even call the Burmese army. So he was expecting that uh, we will be having a racist problem. But when he actually reached to the uh, Ta'an region, uh, he found out that there is no hatred to the Burmese people. And then there was no problem about the racist problems. Yeah, he also thought that it's because of the communication between the Burmese people and the Palaun racists. Uh, because uh, Palau people, they provide tea leaves and the other uh, things to the Burmese people. And then they they make some tradings and then some uh, they do some business with uh, Burmese people. So there, there was uh, no problem about that. But the only other thing was about the weather. Because of the rough weather in the mountains, it's a very different weather from the like Manly region. It's very cold for the people from the uh, Manly region because uh, Manly is hot. Yeah, and uh, in mountain it's very cold in here. So we are still having uh, problems about the the weather problems, but uh, now we are getting used to it. And he said that he is also surprised that TNLA. Uh, the National Liberation Army is a well-formed military, and then they are also following the code of conduct, and then they follow in a democracy way, and then uh, most of the leaders from the TNLA have the uh, liberal ideas, and then they also warmly welcome to the young leaders from the revolution forces. So, see, he was surprised about that. Billy told me that this same dynamic had occurred all over the country. And this is probably a good time to remind listeners that we've covered the formation of the PDFs in our two previous series about Myanmar. And if you haven't had the time to listen to those, I really hope you do, because it'll make this one a lot more interesting. And this one probably won't make much sense without it. Yeah, and I think this is really a key dynamic. And we can come back to the conversation maybe about day after or the political dimensions of, of the conflict. But um, there's um, 
frankly, uh, before the coup, these sorts of coordinations would be uh, like incomprehensible. I mean, you'd see the Arakan Army, the Kachin Independence Army, the Ta'ang National Liberation Army, all of them have deep uh, connections with mostly Bamar um, ethnic PDS, some of whom work in coordination with the national unity government, some which are slightly more independent. But um, the this is a inter-ethnic collaboration that's that's very novel um, and demonstrates uh, a shift and uh, inter-ethnic and intercommunal dynamics in the country that are is very positive in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, the TNLA the um, has been providing weapons and training for PDFs in Mandalay. Um, the KIO the KIA has been providing weapons and training and tactical and strategic support to PDFs in Sagain. The Arakan Army has been maybe more than any group providing tactical uh, support and weapons and training to PDFs in Bogo, Ayurwadi, Maguay, and now more recently in Sagain. So really the, Bur the Burman heartland of the country. So yeah, all of these ethnic minority-based armed organizations are now collaborating, um, sharing resources and knowledge um, with uh, with with Bamar ethnic um, PDFs. Um, there's a so that I think the main question here is like, what does this mean for intercommunal relations? What does this mean for the future? uh of you know of the country is there does this indicate there's potential for greater national solidarity in the absence of the Myanmar military fracturing communities and so on um but yeah it's it's a it's a radical shift in those relationships billy also shared that as we've heard from every single pdf fighter we've talked to their time alongside the eros as comrades in arms has changed the way they see ethnicity and the future of their country i mean i think this is also manifest in a lot of the research that my organization, the U.S. Institute of Peace, has been doing at the among the general public. I mean, we've done three different studies um, over the past year to assess intercommunal relations in the post-coup period and to kind of see how relations have shifted. Because there's a really dominant narrative that um, Myanmar is kind of irreconcilably fractured and that the communities are loyal to their ethnic identities, not their national identities and so on. And um, frankly, all of our research has, has pointed to a similar uh, trend, which is one, inter-ethnic relations are considerably better. There's a, um, there's greater solidarity. Um, there's uh, actually one of the, the experimental research studies that we did found that national identity as in being from Myanmar was more uh was more important to respondents than ethnic identity which totally cuts against um narratives about Myanmar um and yeah i mean i think there's been considerable gains in interethnic relations and it's you know it's hard to determine you know the causal linkages here whether you know the improved interethnic relations are spurring greater military collaboration and collaboration on humanitarian assistance and governance and so on. But um, it does feel like there's a major shift and social dynamics um, in addition to these kind of military shifts that are taking place. I mean, I think that the research we've done has has found there to be sort of uh, extremist nationalist perspectives still remain. Um, but that they're, they're, the likelihood of them escalating to violence is reduced in large part because the public's vulnerability to uh, incitement or to highly divisive political speech, most of which came from Myanmar military-run troll farms, um, is is much. I mean, there's much more resilience to those that that form of political violence. So, you know, I think there's a, still a lot of work, obviously, to do to build intercommunal um, cohesion and understanding, but that the the likelihood, you know, for example, in a post-SAC world that you will be, you know, see mass intercommunal violence, it seems much lower than a lot of people are presuming that it would be. Um, that the that the actual horizontal relationships across communities are not 
are not as bad um, as many presume. Actually, one of the surveys that we did found that Myanmar's intercommunal relations are no worse than countries with much lower levels of violence, which is kind of an indication of the fact that it's really vertical dynamics like uh, violent political speech, highly exclusionary governance structures that are driving intercommunal violence. And so um, that those on that dimension, at least at the person to person intercommunal relation or relationships, I think there is there is a lot to be um, a, a lot of like positive narratives there. Talking of positive narratives, here are some positive narratives about products and or services. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Another aspect of the conflict that has played out in Operation 1027 is the role of China and the massive crime empires that the hunters facilitated along the country's borders in recent years. I asked Billy to explain some of those. So this has become the major uh, political dynamic between China and the SAC over the past year, frankly. I mean, it's um, essentially what we've seen is the emergence of these massive scam operations um, that use foreign labor that's trafficked into Myanmar, into areas controlled primarily by Myanmar military commissioned border guard forces. So these are commissioned under the Myanmar military, which is a very key point um, in most cases. And they are running scam operations um, at a global level that are scamming people using a, a scheme called pig butchering, which is long-term relationship building. And then um, you're yeah, theft at a large scale. This is like, these are sizable losses from individuals. So last year, for example, to give you a sense of that scale, China lost $20 billion to these scam operations, $20 billion. Yeah. And the United States lost $2 billion on scam operations emerging from Myanmar. I mean, the, the scale of this is wild. I mean, there's more than there's more than 100,000 people being held in scam zones in Myanmar from 46 different countries. I mean, it's a it's this is a total global operation because I mean, this emerged actually before COVID. I mean, in Sihanoukville, Cambodia and other places where there's you know rule of law is, is dubious. They um, have have initiated kind of casino operations, which are illegal in China and um, really targeting Chinese public. And during COVID, when China, a lot of Chinese nationals were forced back to mainland China, um, the these criminal enterprises were were short on labor, and so they shifted their approach. I mean, they they shifted to 
trafficking people into their zones and then operating at a global scale, um, finding labor from around the world, um, you know, using not not low skilled labor. I mean, th this is these are high skilled kind of middle class workers seeking employment in the tech industry or some other scheme that, they, you know, eventually they're, you know, held at gunpoint and forced to scam their um, co-nationals. Um, so that's a little bit of background. So this is happening in Kokong um, along the Chinese border, also in the Wa territories and in the NDAA territories. Um, the largest areas are actually on the Thai-Burma border um, with the Karen Border Guard Force and affiliated criminal organizations. Um, so essentially over the past year, um, the Chinese have, have noticed not only the, the financial losses, but the potential for social instability, because as youth unemployment has grown in China, um, you know, these young people are seeking new employment opportunities, crossing the border in Myanmar for um, high paying tech jobs and then being held at gunpoint. So you have, um, you know, mothers on social media saying, I haven't seen my son in three weeks and, you know, he's being held in a scam operation. So, you know, this is this is deleterious at two levels, the, you know, the financial scam losses and the trafficking. Um, and it's all being run by border guard forces that are commissioned by the Myanmar military. And yet you see countries around the world, including China, going to the Myanmar military and saying, please shut this down. Um, and of course, the Myanmar military has no intention to shut this down because these these scam operations are financing the border guard forces that are their key weapon against the resistance. So they need the border guard forces. And so they will never shut down the scam operations. And so what what ensued was essentially um, earlier this year, I mean, the, the Chinese came to the Myanmar military and said, we will support you at every level. We will prop you up, provide you weapons, provide you assistance if you can demonstrate the capacity to govern, the capacity to provide stability on our border, the capacity to provide, uh, to allow us to pursue our economic interests. Um, and the SAC has completely failed this test. Scam operations have exploded. Um, China's economic interests the Chaopu Special Economic Zone remains in a, you know, impact assessment phase. The Lepidon Copper Mine is non-functional. The Mietso Dam is non-functional. They're just not getting out of the SAC what they wanted. Um, and so there was a meaningful shift um, recently, it appears. Um, and I think by all indicators that we can see, the Chinese greenlit Operation 1027. Um, that they at least did not stand in their way. Um, and you'll see from the MNDAA, um, I mean, they really were the leaders of the operation, that in the statements that they issued about the operation itself and when they articulated their objectives, the first objective was to shut down scam operations. I mean, you can see that this is, they're speaking to a Chinese uh public and government indicating that we're a, a responsible good faith actor that will shut down these enterprises that are trafficking your citizens and scamming the public out of billions of dollars. Um, so this has become a really dominant um, dynamic in the relationship between the, the Chinese and the SAC. Um, and it's it, it leads to a really weakened position for the SAC if they're not being propped up in the way that they have been for so long by by the Chinese. So we'll have to see how this kind of unfolds, but um, it's not looking good for the military. When we do see how this unfolds, it'll be people like the Mandalay PDF who we see leading the charge for a new and democratic Myanmar. We don't exactly know what that means, but I asked them if the weapons seized in Operation 1027 would allow them to arm more fighters and get there faster. We are also now recruiting uh, new recruits, but we will, we will have to recruit until the center is gone. And uh, we also need uh, more soldiers to form up the uh, better army than the center. After we won, even after we won, we are going to need uh, some more human resources uh, to form up the better army than the, the 
uh, may allied army, you know. And for the arms and ammunition, uh, we got a lot of uh, arms and ammunition from the Malay army, but uh, we it's uh, they use a different type of the ammunition, and then because uh, we, for example, we use like uh, AK types, we have the different ammunition, so it is not very uh, possible to arm the better weapons from the uh, the Malay army. We only use uh, some of the weapons like for the artillery or something like that, but that's only a few we got from them. What we really need is about the better artillery or SAM or something like that for the airstrikes. So yeah, it's not very useful for us from the arms and ammunition we got from the Malay army. He said that uh, the main points in the armed revolution is it's about to capture the important points, not to capture all the cities or something like that. Like uh, to capture the enemy's headquarters or the important places, we are going to need more plans. And then he said that he's stay and clear about that. I asked Billy what he thought we could expect in the new Myanmar. As he points out here, everything every so-called analyst has said has been proven wrong by the revolution. They have exceeded the wildest expectations of experts in London and Washington, D.C. And where they go next is really up to them. Good question. And frankly, I don't have a lot of uh, information about that. I mean, you've seen pictures over the past 12 days of the as the resistance has taken 150 posts, they've definitely captured a lot of um, heavy munitions and artillery, but yeah, I'm not sure service to air capabilities. I, I mean, I think the, the fact that the Myanmar military is not able to push the resistance out of urban areas. I mean, this is the first time really that the resistance has moved into urban areas and held them, um, including in Tagayan. I mean, Kolin has been, they're holding it. Um, and um, so, I mean, that seems to be an indication to me that the SAC's capability is weakening. Um, I mean, yeah, th- their their access to foreign currency and to purchase weapons is highly constrained now. I mean, their primary providers, Russia and China, you know, one's fighting their own war and the other is kind of is a little bit more skeptical as to whether they deserve their support. Um I mean, the, just last week, the the U.S. initiated new sanctions on the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise that provided half a billion dollars in revenue for the junta per year. Um, yeah, that's a major that's a major issue for them a- accessing U.S. dollars, which they need to buy weapons. Um, I mean, the the ties can no longer pay the the Myanmar military in USD. Um, and the Myanmar military doesn't want bot. Uh, so they're literally negotiating barter agreements where they, you know, sell gas for um, for material goods. But now you have the resistance controlling, you know, part of uh, Kalkarig on the Asia Highway into Thailand. I mean, they control the borders in, or they're starting to in a way they hadn't before. So even the this sort of bartering or material trade is, is less viable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they're just really asset constrained. Um, and it does, I mean, just the fact that they haven't been able to retake these critical logistic hubs. I mean, the 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 border crossings that the resistance has have controlled constitute 40% of the of the um of the overland trade between China and Myanmar. It's like, you know, it's like four billion dollars in value that's being, you know, that tax loss for the SAC. It's considerable considerable losses there as well and how long they can really hold out and maintain their air assets is really questionable particularly since they've had to massively diversify their as- air asset purchase which really makes it more complex to service planes, um and helicopters so yeah i mean i think i'm not sure that the resistance has much more capacity in service to air or air defense but um it it does seem like the the SAC's capacity to inflict atrocities in this way has also been constrained. Yeah, it sort of flies in the face of every sort of like 
analytical idea about the, the the assets that you need to have in order to be successful in one of these like they they've really proved a lot of people wrong in a in a really impressive way yeah. um i know you have to go i want to ask one more real quick um the uh the, these towns did the sac pull out of the towns or did did they like fight house to house or like how, how did they or did it vary across the country well the I mean, the SAC was, you know, in their barracks themselves. I mean, in these towns, it's a national uprising. The public is, you know, opposed to the the presence. This is an occupying force. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just moving in and capturing military posts. And I'm, as one person, a uh, resistance fighter indicated, essentially, you fire your gun in the air and they lay down their weapons, which is more, uh, you know, an indication of, of where the military stands um, and the support that these, these highly isolated, I mean, this is a fractured light infantry force that's dispersed at posts all over the country. Um, and, you know, they're resupplying from the Northwest command in Moiwa to towns within 30 minutes drive by helicopter because they can't train, they can't move. So there's just not logistic support to these posts. Um, and so, yeah, you've got folks in there that just the will to fight is pretty small. Morale is is shrinking from a very low base. Um, and so I think there was the, the general pattern is just resistance taking military barracks and posts um, rather than having to go house to house. Um, I mean, there's villages and towns where there's these groups called Pusati that are like military aligned militias. Um, but yeah, that's not really, you know, a nationwide um, fighting force. Um, and it's in most cases, it really is just the resistance capturing posts and pushing out um, more military um, personnel. And I mean, there was a they're also using drones to a high degree of effectiveness. They recently killed a, a colonel who was on he was about to be um, uh become a brigadier general, um, the highest ranking person to have been killed in battle from the member military um, through a drone strike in Northern uh, Shan state, I believe, or Kachin. Um, and I think the, yeah, the, the resistance drone capabilities have also increased considerably. And this is also an area where you see NUG collaborating a lot with the EROs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a barracks, um, uh, you know, Myanmar military personnel, and they just, in many cases, just lay down their arms because it's just morale is so low and the probability of them to be able to fend off indefinitely is um, when they have the public against them and a resistance movement against them. It's just really a challenging set of conditions for them. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. We don't know exactly what the future of Myanmar is, but it took an interesting turn in the last few weeks with the KNDF, that's the Kareni National Defense Force, 5th Battalion, issuing a statement of solidarity with the people of Rojava. And... The people of Rojava, in the form of the YPG and the YPJ, their defence units of men and women respectively, recording a response at great risk during the ongoing Grown campaign, expressing their solidarity and support for the revolutionary people of Myanmar. Something we'll cover in greater detail in another episode, but it's yet another illustration of how the revolutionary people of Myanmar have continued to defy everyone's expectations about how and where they will go next, and how they've managed to dream up a vision for a more equal and just future, even as they face the injustice and inequality of fighting a war the world doesn't seem to care about, without a single dollar of international military aid, and little support other than strongly worded letters from the UN at sporadic intervals. As we come to the end of the episode, I asked Sayar Montine if he had anything else he would like to share with our listeners. Okay, uh, he said that if he is able to talk... He wants them to know that we are not the white people. We most of them are educated and we are only fighting for the democracy. But in some international news, uh there will be some news that uh like uh PDF the revolution forces are killing each other or something like that. But it's like not fully correct. Maybe some, uh, a few will be doing that, but most of us are not doing that way. It's just a propaganda from the male army, you know. He also said that uh, we are no more expecting for the help from the other countries. We will be fighting our own and then with our spirit till the end. And uh, he also wanted to say that to the U.S. government or the king of England or the other countries, authorities, that uh, we are not wild ones. We are educated and then we are just fighting to get the democracy back to our country. He's using a little bit strong words, you know. He said that uh, if other governments are not helping us because uh, they can't get any benefits from helping us. Even if they don't want to help us, just uh, don't look us like we are the wild ones. We will be uh, trying to get the level of the other countries. We will always be trying for that. If you have uh, any chance to speak out in a seminar or the workshops or any other things or or any meetings, he wants you to tell the news about uh, killing each other of our revolution forces is just a propaganda of SAC. If uh, there is no more SAC, there will be no issues like that anymore. Most of the some issues are just because of SAC, and then they spreading some rumors about that, and then fake news. You know, if you guys can can come and visit us, and then you can see how we treat people, and then how we respect the civilians, and then how we follow code of conduct in person. If you want to follow the Madeleine PDF, you can search for them on Facebook, where they post regular updates. We'll include the link in the show notes for you. If you want to hear more from Billy, I'll let him tell you how. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, we put out a paper at usip.org yesterday on the relationship between the, the scam operations and the the, um, the conflict dynamics. I'm putting one out 
probably next week on the day after, um, quote unquote, dynamics, um, summarizing some of our research. Um, I'm on Twitter at B-I-L-L-E-E, the number four, the letter D. So you can uh, try to stay up on some of the conflict dynamics there. Um, but yeah, the USIP websites where we publish most of our most of our stuff. In closing, I just want to share how much hope I found in the conflict in Myanmar in recent weeks. At a time when the world seems so full of cruelty, it's inspiring to see people relatively unified, committed to respecting life and civilians, and succeeding against all the odds. This doesn't mean they don't need help, they do desperately. And I hope that as people continue to advocate for civilians in Gaza, they can include civilians and revolutionaries from Myanmar in their demands going forward. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.